You know, as we continue this series, starting with Genesis and going all the way through to Revelation, one of the things that we want to make sure that you understand is there's so much in every book that we go through that we could spend a lifetime practically in every book. And so what we want to do is just kind of remind you of a lesson or a direction each of these books is taking so that you can spend more time in it and have a better grasp of what God is trying to tell us through the whole of His Word. The book of Mark is the book we're in this morning, and it's no exception. There's so much to see in this book, so much to hear and read, that it's hard to pick out any particular story. Uh, Oftentimes when people ask me, you know, where should I start? in reading the Bible, I often point them to the book of Mark because uh, the Bible points to Jesus, both Old and New Testament. And so Jesus is kind of the reason for the book. And Mark is probably the earliest gospel, the earliest story of Jesus ever written. And it is a fast pace when it shows Jesus as a man of action. Many times in the book of Mark, you see the word immediately or straight away is the old Bible word. And we find Jesus involved in all kinds of healing and and, uh, ministry. And so I recommend the book of Mark for a quick start on the life of Jesus if you've never done so before. Maybe the best place to start in your Bible reading plan for the book for the year of 2014 would not be Genesis, but the book of Mark to put you in tune with where Jesus is and what he wants for us. So in deciding where to start with the book of Mark, there's a place in chapter 8 we're going to, to land. And the reason we're going to do that is because it kind of is the hinge point of the book of Mark. Before this uh, place in chapter 8, eight, we find the the man of action, Jesus. And after this point, we find Jesus headed toward Jerusalem and and much more serious and sober things facing him. It's a turning point in the book. It's a turning point in the life of the disciples, especially Peter. And it can be a turning point for us. You know, turning points are places in our lives where we make a choice or a decision that affects everything else that comes after it. Sometimes we know about these turning points. Sometimes we realize that this is a big deal, you know, the choice of a career, uh, the educational path we take, maybe a place we're going to live, the choice of a life partner. Uh, all of those things, we, it, we often understand that when we make this decision, it's going to change the course of our life. There are other decisions that we make along the way, other smaller choices that we don't maybe put so much thought into, but they often turn out to be th- turning points as well. I don't know if you have some of those in mind, but at the time you kind of sort of made that decision or choice on the spur of the moment. And as you look back on it, either for bad or for good, you say, oh, boy, that really changed my life. What I did then changed the course of my life afterwards. In Mark chapter 8, we find such a story. This is a turning point in the life of Peter and the, and, and the disciples. For what happens here and afterwards will change the course of their lives and, in turn, our lives for history. And so what I'd like to do is read this passage, starting in Mark 8, uh, verse 27. Kind of a lengthy passage. You follow along and listen as I read. Peter and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then, calling to the crowds to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Jesus asked a series of questions here of the disciples and of us that I think can help maybe make a turning point in our lives if we have not already answered these questions. And if we have answered these questions, perhaps clarify a little bit more where we need to be headed as we head into 2014. The first question Jesus asks, found in verse 28, who do people say that I am? He asked this of his followers. I'm sure they've heard lots of opinions about Jesus, about his ministry, his healing, and the miraculous things that he's doing. No doubt floating around Galilee were all these stories about this new mysterious rabbi with this mysterious message. These uh, disciples were connected to friends and family and acquaintances, and I'm sure they heard the talk, the speculation about who this man might be. And so they have a, a variety of responses. Some people say, you're John the Baptist. Some people say, you're Elijah, come back to life. Some people say, you're one of the other prophets. Today, there are lots of opinions about who Jesus is. Ask the man on the street. Ask the woman next door to you in your cubicle who Jesus is, and you'll hear all sorts of answers, like some of these up here that we'll watch. I definitely believe he existed. I definitely believe he was a real person. When I think of Jesus, I think of a very wise, kind man. He was really active in his community. That walked what he talked. I'm all about Jesus. <laughs> I love Jesus um, and I think that his teachings and his beliefs were pure. Love, understanding, compassion. Just this wonderful person who doesn't judge anybody. I think Jesus may have been the first feminist. Inclusion. The first person that gave women a chance. Very giving. You have to admire anyone who would die for what they believe in unconditionally loving person. Just accepts everybody for who, who they are. Jesus was the first historical figure who didn't treat women as unclean second-class citizens. I think of someone that has compassion and that truly cared for his flock. Well, many opinions about Jesus. Now, behind those opinions uh, are a lot of 
their own ideas. You can kind of hear them come out about what they're focused on in, in de describing Jesus. And, and, and they, really, can they all be right? Can we always do we, this many opinions? Some say the prophet, some say a good teacher, some say a good man. There's so many different opinions about Jesus. And we could criticize maybe some of the views that we heard and maybe some of the views that we hear today that people say about Jesus. But before we criticize, listen to some words of David Platt. We pick and choose what we like and don't like from Jesus' teachings. In the end, we create a nice, non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class American Jesus who looks like us and thinks just like us. But Jesus is not customizable. We have no right to personalize him. Instead, he revolutionizes us. It's not really what other people think of Jesus that counts. It's the next question that's even more important that Jesus asks. Who do you say that I am, disciples? And Peter, being the one always quick to answer, says, you are the Messiah. That is the Christ, the anointed one. That's a title. You are the Messiah. You see, Jesus is the one, Peter says, they've been waiting for. The one the prophets spoke about more than 400 years before this time. The one who was to come and liberate the Jewish people and restore them back to a world power. We often call what Peter says the good confession. And we add a little more to it when we say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. I've been puzzled by the next statement that Jesus makes after Peter's confession. That statement is found in verse 30. It says he warned them not to tell anybody about this. I've been puzzled by this. Aren't we to tell the good news? Doesn't Jesus want the message of the gospel spread? Yes, he does. But I think in the following uh, statements that Jesus makes and in what Peter, how Peter responds, we see that the disciples aren't quite ready to spread this news. Jesus outlines then, starting in verse 31, his ministry, what a Messiah is in Jesus' terms, a person who is going to suffer rejection, a person who is actually going to physically suffer and die and be resurrected later. Now, you have to understand that in the minds of the disciples, this is not anything they'd ever been taught, anything they'd ever believed. They are expecting someone to come and liberate them, to change things, to change their conditions right then and now, and flip the power structure so that they become in charge. Suffering, death, and rejection don't play a part in their view of what the Messiah is. I don't even think the word resurrection or rise again got to their brain. I think when they heard suffering and death and rejection, it just sort of stopped everything, and Peter does what Peter does best. It says, in the old version, it says, Peter rebuked him. He reprimands Jesus. He corrects him. That's a pretty dangerous thing to do, <laughs> to correct Jesus. But you see, at this point, Peter still doesn't have the proper view of who Jesus really is. And it says, Jesus turns right around and does what? The same word, 
rebuke, correct, reprimands Peter. And he uses some of the harshest words ever used to his followers. And he says what? Get behind me, Satan. Much like he said in the wilderness. Could it be that he is being tempted again by one of his own followers, just like Satan had tempted him in the wilderness? Yes, I think so. Peter wants to pull him away from what God's plan is for him, and Peter wants a nice, safe, tidy Messiah who fits into his box. Barclay says, it's a strange thing and sometimes a terrible thing that the tempter speaks to us in the voice of a well-meaning friend. That's the way it started in the garden. Did God really say that? Peter says the same thing. Oh, you don't really mean that. Some of your friends might say that to you today. God surely doesn't mean that. I can't believe in a God who would do that. You see, that's not the point. Jesus defines who he is, not us. And so Satan tries to use one disciple to turn Jesus away from what God intends, and another disciple, Judas, to lead him to his death. And so because of that, because Peter and the disciples don't have the correct understanding of who the Christ, the Messiah is, and they need more teaching and correction, what does Jesus say? Don't speak about this yet. Sometimes we can do more harm than good until we know what we're doing. And so Peter is admonished and rebuked and says, don't speak about this because Jesus wants them to know more fully that what is going to happen, suffering, rejection, and death, fits in to God's plan. He wants to set Peter straight. Peter is the first one to stumble over what a Messiah is going to be. He will not be the last. His conception is too narrow. He is at cross purposes with Jesus, and so Jesus says, do not speak of this thing. The Messiah is not a conquering king. He's a suffering servant. He does not invite his followers to come along and overthrow the government by force and establish a kingdom on earth. Instead, he asks them into a life of humiliation and ridicule, service and suffering, and maybe even death. A follower of Jesus must get more than just his title right, Christ. It goes farther than that. There's some words in Matthew that are very frightening to me that kind of fit in here. Let me read them. This is in Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Simply calling me Lord will not be enough. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will join me in heaven. Those are sobering words. Just because you get the title right doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. So what is the will of the Father? What's a follower of Jesus to do? Jesus outlines this just very briefly in verse 34. I've preached sermons on this. I've preached three-point sermons. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. But really, those three things are very similar and can be boiled down to one concept. When you become a follower of Jesus everything changes. You change the way you think. You change the things that you want. You change your motivation. You change your relationships. You change your very reason for living. With this statement, follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, 
Jesus is asking these men to leave behind their professions, their possessions, their dreams, their ambitions, their family, their friends, their safety. He's even asking them to leave behind their security and abandon everything. In our world and in their world, that revolves around self-promotion, self-protection, preservation, entertainment, comfort. Jesus says, kill yourself. You must die to yourself. Becoming a Christian is a summons to lose our lives. Let's suppose that we meet a friend out in the foyer who we see every week, and, and yet when they come in, they look strangely all messed up and a little bit dirty and scuffed up, and we say, what in the world happened to you? And they say, well, I was on my way here on Highway 37, and I had a flat tire. I had to get out to change the, 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 the tire, and I, I just stepped back for a moment, and a Mack truck hit me going 70 miles an hour. And you say, well, what happened? Well, well, I just got up, dusted myself off, changed the tire, and came. You'd look at him and think, well, that's got to be the wrong story, because if you're hit by a Mack truck, what happens? You're not the same as you were before you were hit. What Jesus is saying here is when you are confronted with Jesus and he says, follow me, it's like being hit by a Mack truck. You do not look the same. You cannot look the same. You cannot stay the same when you really encounter the presence of Jesus. It's just like being hit by that Mack truck. At this time of year, we often reassess our priorities. We look at our life and, and, and ask ourselves questions about where we are and where we're going to go. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to ask yourself the question, have I really come face to face with Jesus? Have I changed? But Jesus asks a couple of additional questions in verses 26 and 27 that are also important. He asks the third question, what will you profit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? And he asks a similar question, is there anything worth more than your soul? Stephen Covey, uh, the late author, often talked about climbing the ladder of success only to find that when you reach the top, the ladder is propped up against the wrong wall. If you look at your calendar and your checkbook for 2013, will it tell you who you've been following? Will it tell you who's important to you? Will it tell you if you've come face to face with Jesus? I think it will. If we were to do an open book audit, it would show us where our priorities are and where they lie. The last, the next to last verse of this passage is, Again, sobering, Jesus says, don't be ashamed of me and my message among these unfaithful and sinful people. If you are ashamed of me, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. In that passage I read earlier from Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to say, at that time, on the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons? Did we not perform miracles in your name? But I will say to them, I never knew you, and now you must get away from me, you evildoers. This is not the, exactly the most cheerful message to bring at the end of a year, but it's a message that we are all required to hear. Jesus says, he teaches, that there will be a time of judgment. 
I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. If you know, I, I fear you're going to be sorely disappointed when it doesn't turn out the way you think. But there will be a time of judgment, that's what he says. And the judge, Jesus, can do what he wants. I know that too. But I know he says there will be time of judgment. And at that time of judgment, I believe that you will get what you want. You will get what you've chosen. If you've chosen to walk away from God, if you've chosen to disregard Jesus, if you have chosen not to follow him, he will make that a permanent separation because that's what you've chosen. That's what you've wanted. If you've decided to walk with him, he will invite you into his presence for all eternity. Now, that's the bottom, the most simple I can make it because I'm a simple person. There's a lot of other complicated things people talk about, but the bottom line is you choose, he will let you have your choice. In his presence or out of his presence, that's your choice. And it starts with that invitation Jesus makes with the, first, the second question. Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life. You can choose to make Jesus the Christ, the Lord and Savior of your life, or you can choose another path. But when you do, everything changes. Now, there's a New Testament word that is translated repent or repentance, but it's a really, really bad translation of the Greek word metanoia, because when we think of repent, we think of sorry. Sometimes sorry or sorry I got caught. But repentance, biblical repentance, biblical metanoia is not that at all. It's a change of everything. It's a change of mind, heart, behavior, attitude. It is the picture of a 180 degree turn. Walk one way and then turn and run the other direction. That's what the picture of repentance is. When you repent... You change the way you think, believe, feel, love. Everything changes when you repent. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I tried to be a very good husband this holiday season, and I recorded all 12 of the original Hallmark Christmas movies. And we've watched almost all 12 of them. I'm trying to pat myself on the back here. Can't reach it too much. Uh, and the Hallmark movies, are ver even if they're not Christmas, they're all kind of the same, really. You watch one, you've watched them all. Because, you know, it's about, it starts with a disillusioned person. And then, in, for some circumstance, they are transported into another place. Maybe it's, it's you know, Santa's workshop, or maybe it's their hometown, or maybe they're stranded in some place. But anyway, something happens, and all of a sudden, they reassess everything that's gone before, and they find the meaning of life, they find their true love, or both. And at the end of two hours with commercials, everything is fine. And they end up, you know, and you know about an hour and a half into the thing, there's going to be a conflict, and 15 minutes later, they're going to figure out how to resolve the conflict. I like those because in some sense, I know it's going to end happy, and now it's going to be less than two hours, and it's all going to be over. Well, <laughs> you have to understand that we often treat the Christian life this way. It's, we make a confession of faith, and all of a sudden... Everything's going to be fine. 
It's not. Jesus calls us to a life that's going to be uncomfortable, perhaps humiliating. There may be some suffering involved. It's not like a Hallmark movie. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. Our spiritual forefathers and foremothers really didn't think you really got it until you started suffering. Everything changes. And when it changes, it's not necessarily always going to be comfortable. But as we begin to change, our life in Christ makes things different. Things get complicated, but like a very long Hallmark movie, in the end, things turn out well. So is there some area of your life where change is needed? Where is the place right now that you're struggling the most in your walk with Jesus? If our enemy Satan wanted to take you out today, how would he go about it? As I said before, repenting is more than just being sorry. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Sorry comes way before repentance. Repentance is what happens when I'm really sorry. And when I repent, I turn around and change everything and head in the opposite direction. So we begin a new year. What better time to decide to change a few things about our lives? What you're doing today will be what you're doing tomorrow unless you change it. So how are things looking for tomorrow for you? Only you can decide to change. You might be thinking, well, I just don't really know what I should change. Where should I start? Or maybe you think, well, I'm pretty good. I don't really need to change. I don't know. Surely you've got some things you could work on. Well, if you renew your interest in God's Word in the Bible, as you start reading it, and you really read it, not to get information, but to get transformation, God will show you where you need to change. It'll be pretty evident to you. But beyond that, as you pray and read God's Word and ask God to show you those things that you need to clean up in your life, there's a very simple uh, thing that you can do. If you, if you say, I've got health issues, I need to change, how, how could I, what could I do? Ask your doctor. He or she will tell you. My doctor says most people don't pay attention to what he says. It's not that there's not an answer. It's just nobody wants to follow through. What about relationships? you got bad relationships with somebody in your family, a wife, a child, a relative. How do you fix that? Ask. What could I do? How can I make things right? What about at work? Things going bad? Ask your coworker. Ask your boss. What can I do? How can I change? I want to make it right. I mean, it's not rocket science, but we just don't want to ask because what happens? When we know what we need to do to change, that doesn't mean we'll do it. But following through is a part of following Jesus. Now, Peter had all sorts of turning points. Fortunately, he got the chance to have more than one. Just like I said, many times we have more than one. He didn't do too well in, in Mark 8. There's, a, there's another time when Peter had a chance to make a confession. Do you remember that time? In, in the courtyard, the fire burning, Jesus at the trial, and someone says, I think I saw you with Jesus. What did he say? No, not me. Someone else says, I, yeah, I think I saw you there. Oh, twice. No, not me. I didn't follow him. He's not the Messiah. Third time. I don't know that man, Peter says. He blew it. 
chance to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he blew it. The Bible says he went away and wept. That's godly sorrow. He didn't get it. Jesus had every right to turn away from him at that point. I mean, we would. But the resurrected Jesus accepted his disciples. Remember, he talked to Peter and said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And I think Peter was a lot more realistic at that point. He was accepted back. And then Peter really gets it. Acts 2, repent, turn away from your wicked ways, be baptized. And he goes on to preach that great sermon. He's getting it. And in chapter 4, he's hauled before the religious leaders once again, and they say, stop speaking the good news about this Jesus. And what does Peter and John and the others say? We can't help but speak it. He's learned to confess more than just Jesus is the Christ. What made the difference? That very last verse that I read, Jesus said, some of you will not taste death until you see the power of God coming alive before you. The kingdom of God's coming in. What is the power of God? The very resurrection of Jesus is the power of God displayed. And so we can say Jesus is the Christ. We can say Jesus is the Lord. But what connects the two? Jesus is the Savior. That power allows us to change. If Peter can change... I can change. And so can you. The most important question you can answer, who do you say Jesus is?